so glad to have you come back for another exciting episode of the Broadway Bulletin. On today's episode, we are heading off Broadway, visiting two amazing venues and two acclaimed shows. Our first show took us to a new theater for us, BAM, where we saw Cyrano de Bergerac. Okay, full disclosure, I am a terrible theater fan and thespian. I've never read or seen Cyrano de Bergerac. I, I really, all I knew is, you know, the disfigured nose thing. And uh, so I went in, but the, the show was getting like huge, like, oh my gosh, that's incredible. And I was like, okay, well, I'm going to go see it. And it was such a brilliant presentation of a classic tale. The set was so simple and it was great that way. Um, the subtlety of the lighting is really brilliant. Um, let me back up a second. So the set was basically like a wooden step, like two wooden steps. And that was like it. It was very bare. You know, there, there was not set to it. You know, it was very, you have to imagine it. Found space almost. Okay. Um... And the lighting, like I said, was very subtle. Uh, the scene where Cyrano is wooing Roxanne on behalf of Christian, and the light got super bright and white and then cooled to a dimmer gray was brilliant. Um, it was a true trick of the eye. Um, and what was great was, like, it was reflecting Cyrano's passion. Oh. Yeah, because Christian doesn't know how to be romantic. Do you know the story of Cyrano? Let me back up. Cyrano loves a woman who she perceive, puts him in the friend zone. But she likes one of his soldiers. Who, like, he, he's, you know, drafted during the, the Napoleonic Wars. And because he's dear friend to this woman, Roxanne, I'll keep an eye on him, blah, 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 and take care of him. But Cyrano's known to be, like, a tyrant, like, hard on his soldiers. Is he the captain? Yes. Okay. Well... She wants to make sure that he also writes her love letters and everything like that. Well, he's not romantic, nor can he write Christian. So, Cyrano, who is romantic and everything, writes on his behalf. But is writing his feelings. Okay. And so when, like, Christian and Roxanne meet, and Roxanne, like, quotes her letters, Christian's like, I don't know what you're kind of talking about. Like, you know, it's the, the puppet ventriloquist kind of thing. Mm-hmm. That's kind of the story of Cyrano, briefly. Okay. Um, the sound was fantastic, and it was a great use of body mics and free mics, because there was a lot of, almost like slam poetry, if you will, with free mics. So there was some reworking of the script. What do you mean by free mics? So, like, handheld mics. Oh, okay, cool. So there, when I say slam poetry or rapping, there was some rewrites in the script where they would recite lines and rap or they would actually freestyle certain things okay like rewrites in the script and they would do that with handheld mics but in addition to that they were all body mic'd so there was great bounce back between that and like i said there was beatboxing there was uh rapping the the story is just really gripping um i love the fact that cyrano doesn't have a physically huge nose so he didn't have that physical deformity Rather, his disfigurement lies within him, in his deeds, in his beliefs, in relation to those around him. 
So what makes him ugly is actually on the inside. Mm-hmm. Though he may be doing things in the name of good or truly good deeds and have good beliefs, like freedom of speech and writing as well as protection of Roxanne from Gauche because there's like a, a priest praying on her. Or the gooch. <laughs> Sorry, was, gooch. I was like, also, maybe instead of saying a priest praying on her... No, no, it, it, it is mean, a priest. It is uh, a priest. No, 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 I know, but get it? Because oh, priest it. praying, maybe use a different word. I, anyway, <laughs> other, other, others may view them as bad or ugly, like his nose. So he has good intentions, but they're viewed as bad, and his temper's bad, and things like that. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. The staging was brilliant. The fact that a lot of tense scenes were delivered out to the audience rather than facing each other, um, and which is very similar to how I learned to drive. Okay. So they were they were facing the audience, not profile. Yeah. So they were directing. They were directing all of their emotion towards the audience rather than across the stage. To right, the but they were still speaking to each other, which yeah. was great. Um, the formations that the cast made, I know this is kind of weird, but they were really fantastic. They were actual formations. I'm in the back row balcony, so I could see these formations that they're making. That was really great. Just the raw and basicness of the staging was brilliant. You know, the actor turning to face upstage to signify an exit or lack of presence was amazing. You know, if you're an actor at all or have any basic theater knowledge, you know, one of the Simple things is like if you're if you're leaving the scene but you can't exit, you might just turn up stage so the audience can't see your face. And there was a lot of that. Okay, so it really was like a found space, like use your imagination yes. for all things kind of production. Yeah, and then you know, just I love the mix of the classic and modern language. So, a brilliant, brilliant show. Sadly, the show closed on May twenty second, twenty twenty two. show brings us back to Manhattan and to the public theater where we saw the the vagrant trilogies this was a cool show a beautiful and human story the first thing I want to say is as you walk up the stairs to this theater at the public they had pictures all in the um, uh, stairwells and whatnot of this of these people and of the subject Okay. So it's almost like a, a museum exhibition, which was cool. So a lot of people were just like rushing to the theater, walked right by all this. So it was interesting to be to, for me, being as early as I was, to get a chance to stop and look at this. Before the show rather than right, after. Because it really gave me a lot of background to what I was going into. Mm-hmm. And it was a three-hour yeah. show. Did it was they a have a sign-up that said that that's what those photos were? Yeah. Well, yeah. well, no, no, no. It didn't say, like, here, you're entering. It was like, as you're walking up the stairs, you could have missed it. They had, like, words on the ceiling and everything. And you're like, okay. But then you start looking around. You have to be, like, aware of your surroundings. Okay. So it didn't, it felt more like you were just happening upon an exhibition. yes. yes. But then as you're paying attention to it, you find that it was tied into the show that you were on your way to see. Well, you didn't realize, I mean, yes, you didn't necessarily realize it was part, tied into the show, but you, you could figure it out that it was part of the show. 
Um, okay. You have to put your phone down, in other words. Pay attention to the world around you. And you start looking around, you start, you know, getting in. You're like, oh my gosh, okay, cool. Um, it is a great telling of the cost. Um, the cost and the, the, the victimage and price of war. Okay. It really put the issue and ideas of refugees front and center. Their living conditions, their mindset, and struggles to really get them the help and needs they want, ID or IE resettlement and return. Um, this primarily focused on uh, refugees involved, uh, and it's in the seventies and eighties, if memory serves me. Yeah, um, along Lebanon, Israel. That area, particularly, you know, they, they mention a lot about Palestine, but I believe these were refugees uh, right on the Lebanese-Israel border, and I believe these are they're actually Palestinian refugees because Israel and Lebanon share a border, and I believe they become refugees in Lebanon. So I think they're Palestinian, and anyway, um, and and of course some of the wars that take place during this are like the Six Days War, the Yom Kippur War, you know, things like that. But I digress. Um, the use of projections uh, was really, really um, brilliant. So they had like this basic set that would move around, float around. They'd bring in basic set pieces, but they would project to set the scene. There would be actual projections of moving things, whether it was London or Upper England and the, Midland, and the Midlands, or um, if they went back to Lebanon. Um, and at the same time, it would still continue to be projected against the back wall, which was amazing. And like I, like I wanted to lead to, the set was brilliant and so transformative, um, particularly Act 3. Um, the act, act 3 was, they completely took apart the set. And the camp set was so detailed and brilliant. It made the home look cozy, yet so drab and saddened. It was just like, this like a shack with all these you know, like couch and rugs and things it was a refugee camp but yet they were making the best of it it was brilliant and and there was six of them in there mm -hmm. and yeah but you know it, it it was so you could tell that though they weren't this is not ideal they made it they were making it work and they were had been there for so long but you still were like, this isn't okay for six people to be living in. Okay. Um, the music was amazing. The news clips were incredible. So they like, used actual news clips from the time periods? Yes, to update about the war. Yep. Um, it really helped us to settle into the mindset of the moment. Um, the costumes were also so fabulous. It was of the time and so transformative. So like I said, it took place over three different periods, in the late 60s and the 80s and then... Act 3 was like in the 90s, 2000s. Okay. Um, the language and pacing was so wonderful. Like I mentioned, it's a three-hour play, but it was just paced so well that it didn't feel that long at all. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A, a lot of people are like, oh, man, it's a three-hour play. But I'm like, you know, a three-hour play, when it's done right, it's done right. Um, the story is just such a beautiful story, forcing us to examine our humanity and stare into the real humanitarian crisis. In how we in the first world respond, react, and speak on humanitarian crises 
elsewhere in the world. You know, people in refugee camps are still trying to have a regular life. You know, this girl's trying to go to college, but she needs this documentation in order to go. And da 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 da. And I just thought to myself, the, the paperwork that she was being asked to have. Well, if you were fleeing, did you grab it? Right. I I think right now about the way we have all of our stuff set up, and if we had to leave in a hurry. I don't know if all of our important documents are in the same spot. Well, yes, they're in one spot, but that would be if there's a fire or something. I'm thinking of like a war. Refugees are typically like a war. No, exactly. But if you had to like leave in an instant, would you be able to quickly grab not only important documents that you're thinking about, but then also like some basic necessities like clothing and important family items and so it just it, it put a lot of things in perspective of. Yes, their needs need to be met, but what other things are we doing to help them? Or are we just like, oh, how, are we how just- can I make me feel better? So, um, I like the link between what we perceive as atrocities here at home versus abroad. Mm-hmm. Um, that was one thing that was really questioned because when this one character who was from the area was living in England... Um, he was living in England during the time of the IRA, mm-hmm. and this horrible, these horrible events were happening in the Middle East, and he did not believe that a bombing that killed two people was an atrocity compared to what was happening back in the Middle East with all these people dying. And he was, you know, really kind of put through the ringer for it. Mm-hmm. And I was like, but that's a really good point. The... The, the words we use, especially among certain people, that, that is, what, what is it called? Uh, the semantics of it mm-hmm. are very important because, I mean, uh, death of a human is, is horrible no matter what. But two people compared to 200, which one's the atrocity? Right. You know, perspective. Uh, I like the shameful showing of a university wanting a token professor and insisting that if he were more Arab he would get the job that was in the second act and I, yeah it was like well maybe if you just taught your your stuff uh, from more of an Arab perspective be more Arab and it was like was uh, he teaching Arab no he was history? teaching he was teaching a British author yeah he was an English professor and it was yeah so the show was just absolutely brilliant I, I just loved it it should be studied Sadly, this show closed on May 15th, 2022. And this concludes this episode of the Broadway Bulletin. Be sure to tune into our next edition coming out every Tuesday and Saturday. So until next time, I'm Andrew Cortez. And I'm Hope Bird. Reminding you to turn off your cell phones. Unwrap your candies and keep your mask on. And keep talking about the theater. In a stage whisper. Thank you. If you like what you hear, please leave a five-star review, like, and subscribe. You can also find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Stage Whisper Pod. And feel free to reach out to us with your comments and personal stories at StageWhisperPod at gmail.com. Our theme song is Booga Blue by U.S. Army Blues. 
other music on this episode provided by Evan Schaefer and Billy Murray. You can also become a patron of our show by logging on to patreon.com slash stagewhisperpod. There you'll find all the information about our backstage pass. Thank you so much for your generosity. We could not do this show without you. Hello.